Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from First Orlando. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at firstorlando.com. And if you're in the Orlando area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now, enjoy this podcast from First Orlando. A number of years ago, Arlene and I were starting a church in downtown Chicago, and we lived down in Lincoln Park and had some neighbors across the hall in the Greystone where we were living. And Wayne, one night at dinner, said, hey, would you play softball? Would you be willing to play on our softball team? And I said, oh, absolutely. So I showed up with my glove. If you're from Chicago, you know that's not what you're supposed to do because in Chicago softball, it's not a 12-inch softball. It's a 16-inch softball. It's hard as a rock, no gloves, bare hands, real men. And I figured that out. And journeyed through the summer with these guys. They were sponsored by a bar on Halstead Street, and we had a blast. They called me the God guy, because I, I was the person they'd bring their, their spiritual questions to, and they, they, they weren't church guys at all. We had some great conversations. At the end of the summer, I was lamenting that we were done, and they said, oh, no, no, we're not done. Yes, yeah, softball season's done, but we play darts in the fall. I said, darts? I'd never played competitive darts. I always just thought the purpose was embedding the dart as deeply as possible into the cork. And they said, no. And so they described it to me. I started practicing. So on Monday nights, we were part of a dart league in Chicago. Tons of bars do it. You either home or away, your, your bar or somebody else's bar. And you're watching a lot. Uh, you, each, each, there are about six players, and each has an event. And so when you're not competing, you're, you're sitting around watching TV. Now, this is Monday night in the fall. What do you think's on TV in a bar in downtown Chicago? Monday night football. Now, this was before the five, seven-second delay that they now do in live broadcasts. So we're watching. I'm sitting next to my buddy Jim, and they show a field goal, and right between the goalposts is this guy with a sign. He's got crazy hair, and he's got a sign, and you know what was on that sign, right? He says, we're looking at it, and all of a sudden, he slaps me. I mean, doesn't touch me, backhands me in the shoulder. I won't quote him directly, but he slaps me, and I turn around, and he says, what the heck is John 316? I said, it's a Bible verse. He said, well, I didn't know that. I figured that. That's why I'm asking you. What, what's it say? I said, you really want to know? He said, yeah, I really want to know. So I shifted in my seat, and I faced him full on. And I said, it, it says that God wants to love you back to life. He said, what? It says that God wants to love you back to life. He said, what's that mean? I said, if you want to get together, we can talk about it. We actually did for about the next six months. And it doesn't always happen in these kind of conversations, but he ended up coming alive in Christ. It's one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. And, all, and actually, we take it, especially in, 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 in great churches like this that are very familiar with the gospel. We almost are too familiar with this verse, but let's settle down and go back through it. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have what? 
What? Eternal life. Now, what's the goal of the gospel? If I were to ask that, if we did a roving mic, and I were to put a mic in your, in your face right now, so what's the goal? I'm not going to, so don't panic. What's the goal of the gospel? You know, business people here, you know value propositions, ROIs. What is the point? We get a variety of answers, but most of them would be around that, well, the goal of the gospel is that I'd be forgiven of my sins, and the gospel meaning that Jesus, He came, He lived, He taught, He died on the cross as a, as a sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice for us. He rose again from the dead to validate that what He accomplished on the cross and what He taught was real, and then he, he ascended to the Father. That's the gospel. What's the point of the gospel? What's the goal of the gospel? Many of us would say, well, to be forgiven of our sins and get to heaven. Is that true? Some of you are saying, I'm not answering that. It's a trick preacher question. No, it's not. Is that true? Yes. But that's not all the gospel is. The goal of the gospel is bigger than just forgiveness of sins and, and, and getting to heaven. Now, take that phrase, eternal life, that we just read. Let's unpack it. My English teacher from high school would be pleased and surprised that I still remember the difference between an adjective and a noun. But we've got the adjective eternal. It's referring to the quantity of what's being offered. We've got the noun, life, that's referring to the quality. When I'm understanding the goal of the gospel, when I'm understanding the gift of this good news, I need to understand it both in adjective and noun, both in terms of quantity and quality. So often, we're just thinking on the quantity that it's living forever, but what about the quality? we got to include them both. Years ago, I was backpacking up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Anybody from Michigan here that's going to claim it? I know there are a lot of you. Yeah, I know, but people in Michigan, there are a lot of people from Michigan and Florida. All you got to do is go through a few winters in Michigan, and you're ready to sense God's will to move to Florida. <laughs> so what do they call the folks that live in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan? Youpers. So I was backpacking for a couple of days, solo trip, came back to the trailhead, the parking lot, and there was a guy there getting ready to embark upon his own backpacking trip. And I said, I'm starving to death. Is there a restaurant you'd recommend? He said, yeah, just down the road, a couple, three miles. He described where it was, drove down there. And it was like I was stepping into that movie, Back to the Future. It was 1950s all over. It was a metallic, silver metallic building. I walk in, open the door, jukebox is playing, a real jukebox. There's these burgundy vinyl booths that are repaired with duct tape, and they're dirty, so when you sit at them, you don't slide, you just stick. You pick up the menu and you let go, it doesn't let go of you. You guys know the kind of place I'm talking about? So the waitress came up to me, chewing gum, dirty apron, pad of paper, pencil, and says, what do you have? And so I just tried to relax her a little bit and joke a bit, and I said, you know, I've been backpacking for a couple of days, I'm starving to death. I'm not interested in quality. I'm interested in quantity. And she didn't hesitate. She says, well, you've come to the right place. <laughs> and when the food came, she was telling the truth. There was a lot of it, but it was gross. It was awful. 
So this whole notion of the, the, the quantity, it has to be companion with an understanding of the quality. I've, I travel a ton over the last six, seven years. I've had three different executives that I was sitting next to bro, start a conversation. They dealt with the odds of sitting next to me with the millions of, of air travelers that day, and they get seated next to a preacher. But we've had some significant conversation, and then they said this, some form of this, I don't understand why you Christians want to live forever. Why would I want this life to go on forever? It's a great question. And it's actually on us. Because we often emphasize the quantity, the forever part, without talking about the qualitative life part. Now, Jesus... He defined eternal life one time. And I'm going to say this, and don't get your heresy email ready to send to David or, or Danny. Uh, eternal life, when I say that, we think heaven, but it's not the same as heaven. Eternal life and heaven are not synonymous. I'll experience eternal life in heaven in an undiluted uh, 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 undeterred way because I'm no longer hindered by a fallen body and a fallen world. But eternal life and heaven are not the same thing. Jesus defines it this way in John 17, 3. This is the night before He gave His life. And He says, you've given me authority to grant eternal life to those you've given me. And then He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's eternal life. Intimacy with the Father that's not just for Sunday on an hour when it's convenient, but it invades every aspect of our life. Relating an intimacy with God by the Spirit through the Son in board meetings, in client meetings, in ball games, at funerals, at parties, at the beach. It's an all of life, qualitative beautiful experience, at least intended to be, that will continue once I get to heaven, no longer held back by a fallen body and a fallen world. And it's not ancillary, it's not a sidebar, it's the centerpiece of the gospel. In fact, Jesus says this is what His mission is. In John chapter 10, verse 10, He says, this is what I came to do. Now, I, I we live part of the time, as Danny said, in Colorado Springs, and from our deck we can see the Navigators, the Nav Press, a powerful discipleship ministry. And I'll sometimes tell execs at the Navs, I'll say, you know, Jesus' primary mission was not to make disciples. And that, that hits a nerve. And I'll say it with a smile, but actually I'm, I'm being truthful. I said, that's his primary strategy. His primary mission, he said it. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's my mission. Now, this is how you do it. Go make disciples. Once you've come alive, go make disciples and be a life giver. Once you've come alive, go make a, a disciples. But the primary mission is centered around that word life. Actually, 
this verse is basically an invitation to you. Not just if you're not yet a follower of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ. It's a continual invitation. We don't get too many invitations in the mail anymore. Everybody emails them. In fact, Arlene and I were at a stationery store in Winter Park a couple of days ago. We're talking with the, the owner, and she said, yes, people are even now starting to send wedding invitations by email. And we, there's something about receiving an invitation and opening up. By the way, this invitation is to that loved image bearer at First Orlando from God on the 7th of May, 2023. And here's what his invitation says. Dear loved image bearer, you're hereby invited. You're hereby invited. You're hereby invited by God through the gospel. And there are two invitations embedded in John 10.10. Any follower of Christ, any person who's not yet a follower of Christ, if they want to taste the gospel, they've got to embrace both of these realities. Here's the first one. It's an invitation to embrace the story that reclaims you as a human being. There's not a person in here that doesn't like stories. Everybody likes stories. Why? Because the stories that move us the deepest are a reflection of the great story of what God is up to. Walt Whitman, back in 2014, was the centerpiece of a Super Bowl commercial. You guys are big on Super Bowl commercials, right? Apple put out a commercial advertising the iPad Air, and they used Whitman's poem, O Me, O Life, back from 1891. Robin Williams was doing some of the voiceover for it because it came from the Dead Poet Society movie where he was the English teacher. Take a look at what Walt Whitman says. He, the name of this poem is O Me, O Life. He's, he's reflecting on what's the purpose of life. It's a little bit like Ecclesiastes. You know, what's the purpose of all of this? And so he's reflecting. He says, oh me, oh life, of the questions of these recurring. What, and then he goes and he describes a, little, a few of the ups and downs, the questions, the things that he's dealing with, the futility out there. And then this is his conclusion. He says, what good amid all of this stuff, oh me, oh life. And then in the poem, he actually says, answer that you are here, that life exists, and identity. And then he comes to the clincher, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. Oh, me, oh, life, what's this all about? What do I need to latch on to? He's an image bearer. And he's saying the key is that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. And what Apple did with that in their commercial, it says, what will your verse be? It's what Robin Williams did in the movie. So what will your verse be? What will your verse be? It's a great question, but it's not the most important question, and it's not the biggest question, and it's not the first question that we need to ask. The first question is not, what will your verse be? But the first question is, what is the play? 
What's the big story? If, I, if I've got a verse to play, what's the ultimate story? Go back to John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus describes the story, the play. Look at this. This is drama. You've got protagonists and antagonists. He says, the thief comes to steal and uh, to kill and to destroy, but I've come to reverse that curse, to challenge that. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's the story. The reason I've come is not to start a religion, not to give something people, some people something to do on a Sunday or start holidays. I've come with a cosmic agenda, and that's to bring life to a planet that's dead. Now, as I'm talking about death and life, absolutely. You got to go back to the garden, which is what this is referring to. The serpent in the garden. Remember, God's He created us as, as, as fully alive, fully intimate with Him, unencumbered. But He says, to maintain that, you need to walk with me in obedience. Don't disobey me. If you disobey me, you shall surely what? Die. So what did the serpent come along and do? Mocked God, quoted God, says, you shall not surely die. And by the way, he still does that. We choose a, a path of behavior or uh, make a decision, and we think, surely this, this won't bring death. I can be a fulfilled man, a fulfilled woman without obeying God. So Adam and Eve rebelled. Did they die? Did they die? You're thinking, there you go again, that trick question. Did they die? Yes and no. You see, in the New Testament, when you look at the word, the English word life, there are several Greek words, all of which are translated life, similar to love. The, 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 the Greek word uh, eros or phileo or agape are all translated in English love. Well, these three Greek words are all translated in English life. There's bios. What English word do we get from bios? Biology. Biology, heart beating, lung breathing life. Suke, psychological life, consciousness. And then there's zoe. It's the life of God. Whenever I meet somebody named Zoe, I just smile. It's a powerful name. See, Adam and Eve, they were, they, were, they were told lovingly by God, but with great authority, follow me and you shall live. If you disobey me, you shall surely die. They disobeyed and they died. Not bios or suke. They were still conscious of who they were as humans, heart still beating, lungs still breathing. I mean, but they were dead. They lacked the life of God. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And we're not going to come alive until we engage with the gospel of Jesus. John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He says, in, he says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Do you know what that means in the Greek? It means whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. One of my spiritual gifts is clarifying the obvious, so there you just have it. 
He says that's the line of demarcation between human beings. All sorts of other differences are out there, but bottom line, you're either alive or you're dead. doesn't mean somebody who's dead spiritually is not capable of great love and tenderness and beauty, but we're also capable of a lot else. And that moment that I come to Christ is that moment that I come alive. And it's what every human being longs for. I know when you woke up this morning, you were thinking, I hope Matt brings up the Canterbury Tales in Geoffrey Chaucer. Right? You were thinking that this morning when you woke up, so here you go. Written in 1400, one of the most famous English literature poems. It's in Middle English, so bear with me. We witten not what thing we pray in here. We fair and is he that drunk as a mouse, a drunk man woot well, he hath a house, but he knew which the right way is thither. That'll change your life. <laughs> but it might help to bring a little bit different translation. Here's it in contemporary English. A drunken man knows he has a home, but he doesn't know how to get there. As fallen human beings, we're all image bearers, and we have that eternity in our heart, and we have a hunger for home. We have a yearning for life. You go to some coffee shop in this post-post-Christian culture, tap on a glass, say, how many of you are desiring this morning to be forgiven of your sins and to get to heaven? How many people wake up with that on their list? No, nobody. Very, very few people. Important things, but that's not where they are. But how many people are yearning to be alive? And along comes this invitation. You're hereby invited by God through the gospel to embrace the story that will reclaim you into the original purpose you're made for. But there's a second aspect of the invitation. You're also invited by God to experience the wholeness that will restore you. It's not just about getting your ticket to heaven. It's about becoming part of the great story in your work, in your play, in every aspect of your journey. It's also about being restored on a daily basis. The Japanese have an art called kintsugi. Kintsugi is, literally means golden repair. It's where they take ancient tea dishes that have been broken, sometimes kept in the home for a couple of generations. They're then entrusted to a kintsugi master, and he repairs it with a lacquer that's laced with real gold. And the end result is a dish that is more beautiful than the original and a lot more valuable. Sound familiar? God remakes us. He says, I want to put you back together. Go back to John 10.10. 10. Look at the last part of that phrase. He says, I don't want you not to have this zoe, have it to the full. This is a restorative phrase. It's a holistic phrase. It's an abundant phrase. It's saying, I want you to be more valuable even. I want you to understand your value. I want you to celebrate who you are as a human being. I want you to come fully alive. Now, Jesus discipled John, obviously. John discipled a guy named Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp discipled Irenaeus, who was the bishop of Lyon. 
In the first part of the second century, Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a human being who's fully alive. God's goal is, yes, He creates us all for His glory, but also when we're glorifying Him, He is fulfilling us in powerful ways. And it was at the heartbeat of what John was proclaiming. In fact, at the end of his gospel, he says, let me tell you, underneath the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, let me tell you why I've written my gospel. Now, he's already started long before he began the gospel saying the unique thing about Jesus was in him was Zoe, first human being to be fully alive since Adam and Eve before the fall. He goes through his gospel describing it, and at the end he says, I've, I've included what I've included about Jesus. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and, 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 and. Do you see that word and there? That by believing you may have life in His name. It's not just one purpose, it's two purposes he wrote his gospel for. The gospel is unpacked in both ways. I'm going to call them part A and part B. Orthodoxy, part A, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Every evangelical church says, okay, you need to trust Jesus as Messiah. That's the thing. And so often we catch this thing of, well, once I've done that, I'm done. I'm going to wait for heaven. No, no, no. Then comes the daily believing. It's not just past tense belief. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Let's call that vibrancy. Orthodoxy is the lyrics. Vibrancy is the music. Together they make the dance. And we're in a crisis with an evangelical church right now because a lot of young people are dissing the orthodoxy of the faith. And one of the reasons, though, that they're doing that is because they, they don't see our vibrancy. It's understanding that the reason He came was to enable us to live. To His glory, not just for, for ourselves, but to do all of life underneath this beautiful enablement by His Spirit, governed by an intimacy with Him. In fact, Thomas Howard wrote years ago in a book called Evangelical is Not Enough. He said, the incarnation, referring to the incarnation of Jesus, took all that properly belongs to our humanity and delivered it back to us redeemed. All of our inclinations and appetites and capacities and yearnings are purified and gathered up and glorified by Christ. He did not come to thin out human life. He came to set it free. This whole notion of His constricting us comes from the enemy. All the dancing and the feasting and the processing and singing and building and sculpting and baking and merrymaking that belonged to us and that were stolen away into the service of false gods are returned to us in the gospel. You know, John is an old man when he was writing his gospel. He was the only disciple, as far as we know, that lived to be an old man. All his friends had been martyred. He was the only one not martyred. He was persecuted. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had, uh, had, had written their Gospels, and in his prologue, he, he gives a one-word description of Jesus. In verse 4 of, of John 1, he says, in him was life. And the unique thing about Jesus was the zoe, 
He was fully alive. Now, not identical to Adam and Eve because he was fully God, but he came not just to make us religious. In fact, he didn't come to make us religious at all, but to, to unleash us as human beings to do what we're made to do in the way that we're intended to do it. So, what's the goal of the gospel? It's for the life of the world. To the glory of God by the enablement of Jesus unleashed by His Spirit. To bring this cosmos back to life. And I love, this is why I love First Orlando and what you're doing because you align with that. You could in one sense say, what's the goal? In light of that, what's the goal of First Orlando? For the life of Orlando and the life of the world. I mean, you guys are doing it. Just Friday, I was with a, a friend of mine. I've grown to respect him deeply. His name is William Andrews. He's heads up, Heart of Mercy Ministries on Mercy Drive here in town, the deadliest block. You guys are doing amazing things for that ministry through for Orlando. And William was driving me around a couple of hours. We just spent, he's, he's, he's telling me story after story. He said, Matt, the gospel here is not just for Sundays. It's for every day. And the gospel for you is not just for your Sunday and not just for your heaven, but for every day. So this invitation, where is it? Is it just sitting on the kitchen counter? Oh, yeah, I, I responded to Jesus long ago. I've been a follower of Jesus. Fantastic. Are you fully alive? Are you experiencing that life and responding to both the embracing and the experiencing? Now, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, maybe it's time to come alive. Danny's going to tell you in just a minute where you can go to get some more help and guidance on that. But if you have believed Jesus as Messiah, part A, I want to encourage you and exhort you. Figure out the part B as well. What does it mean to be fully alive, to believe the gospel today with my client in this meeting, at this soup kitchen, on my vacation? And to not just know the lyrics of the gospel, but to embrace the music so I can do the dance. And the first step to you becoming a participant in that dance is standing up. And I'd like you to stand up right now, and I'm going to pray over you. Jesus, thank you for the, the good news of the gospel. <laughs> it's why it's called the gospel, because it really is good news. And for those of us who are past tense thinking, okay, I did it, and now I'm waiting for heaven, I thank you that they're in the kingdom, they're your kids, and that they're alive by way of status. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in them. Where are they in terms of not just the status of being alive, but the experience of experiencing what it means to walk with you in intimacy. And be a life giver to the people around them. And there's some folks here or online that they, they've got that hunger for home. They just haven't been able to trace it. A, a yearning to be fully alive. Would you give them the courage to open this invitation? 
and to say, I want to embrace the story that reclaims me. I want to experience the wholeness that, that restores me. I want to come to Jesus, not just for a religious status, but for my experience as a human being to be resurrected and aligned with the original purpose that I'm made for, for the glory of God. I pray this in the name of the one who is way and truth, but also life. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the First Orlando Podcast. For more information like our service times, location, and other contact information, be sure to visit us online at firstorlando.com. Have a great week.